why would God care about you? Why would God care about me? I don't know, but he does. And this psalm is, is just about the awe that we should have that the God of the universe who created everything, that he cares about us. Not only did he give us an exalted role as humans above the animals and above the rest of his, his natural order, but also that he still cares about us and thinks about us. So we're in Psalm 8, and finally we have a psalm that is simply what you might have expected in coming to the psalms. It's just a psalm of praise, a psalm of joy. Um, And of course, we've been seeing how important these lament psalms are, and we'll see many more of them. But sometimes it's good just to have your heart and your mind exalted, lifted up to see how great God is. Sometimes you just need to stand in awe. So let's get into this this, uh, psalm. The heading here says, To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. So the the key word there that we want to figure out is gitith. Does that refer to maybe an instrument or a tune? We're not sure. But in the Targums, which are the, the old translations or interpretations of the Old Testament in Aramaic, they translate this as instrument of Gath. And so that may re- relate to Goliath, who was from Gath. So there's, there's a lot of speculation, but it's possible that this may be related to David and Goliath. That's, that's a real possibility. And so if, if so, it has some interesting implications because there does seem to be a theme in this psalm of God using the weak, the insignificant, to, to win a victory through the name of Yahweh, which is, of course, is what David did in his fight with Goliath. So we're going to get into it. Maybe that will help us a little bit at seeing what this is all about. The first section we see is Psalm 8, verses 1 through 2 which is about the glory of God, the glory of God. Verse 1, David says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. So this phrase here, the first opening phrase, is repeated at the end of the psalm. So the psalm is phrased by this awe of the majesty of God and how God has has shown his name through the entire earth. So this is all about the name of God. To understand the name of God, you really have to kind of go back to the book of names in the Old Testament, which is Exodus. And again, I would encourage you, if you haven't listened to our our teaching on the book of Exodus, do it. Listen to it. Those are some of the best lessons that we've taught on the book of Exodus. But Exodus in Hebrew, the the name for the book of Exodus is literally names. It's names. And it's it's called that because the first word in that Hebrew book is names. Right. So it starts off with that word names. But I think that that name for the book refers to something much more. Because in the book of Exodus, God reveals his name two times. And this is unique throughout the Bible, that God would reveal his personal, his covenant name. And so the name that we see of God in the book of Exodus is this name Yahweh. And we this should be familiar for you. Hopefully you're learning this name. If, you, if you're new to the Bible, Yahweh is such an important name. And that's the first word here. So when he says, O Lord, and it's in all caps, that is this covenant name of God. It's Yahweh. When you see Lord, where it's just capital L and then lowercase o-r-d, that's just the word Adonai, which speaks to a Lord or a master. So it's not the, this, the name of God. So those are two different words, even though in English they're the same word, right? But the, it's, it's, uh, you're notified of that by those all caps of Lord. And it's a gift that God has disclosed his name to us. Right? His name 
why it's so important is not just because it's a certain collection of syllables that identifies who God is. That's not why this idea of God's name is so important. The name of God speaks to who he is. In the Old Testament, they would name people things based upon who they were or who they thought they would be. And so a name was a very powerful thing. It's true of God as well. When God reveals his name Yahweh to Moses, he's revealing not just syllables, but his character. The name of God in Exodus 3 is revealed as I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. So it shows God's power, his self-sufficiency, that he's eternal, that he depends upon no one else. It's very important It's showing who he is. We see this when God reveals his name the second time in Exodus, in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. This is what it says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So you see here, the name of God, as he's declaring it, is not just Yahweh. It's all the implications of that name. It's that God is loving, that he is just. All these things that he says following that name. And so as it's speaking in here in Psalm 8 about the name of God and how it's majestic throughout the entire earth, We're speaking about who God is, his character. So it's a majestic name. It's impressive and power is the idea. And it's a a glorious name. God has glory above the heavens. Glory speaks to the essence of who God is, right? It's the radiance of his nature. It's, it's, It's who he is at the very basic level. And notice there's a parallel here between earth and heaven. So your name in all the earth, and then it says your glory is above the heavens. So there's a parallel here. And what it reminds us of is that God is in charge of everything and that the entire creation is made to reflect who he is. So God is majestic and glorious and his name has been pronounced. Look at verse two. He says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avengers. (laughs) This is interesting. So he's talking about how babies are strong. So strength from God comes through these babies and infants. Well, the the word babies refers to toddlers. The the infants refers to those who are nursing, right? So like a true nursing infant. And it says out of the mouth of babies is where God establishes strength. Now, the mouth of a baby is only really good for one thing, right? It's not a mouth of a baby can't talk. They're, They're not able to speak. All they're able to do is to receive sustenance through their mouth. They're able to eat. They're able to consume. Babies are the greatest picture of a dependent, weak being that can do nothing on its own. And so God uses this image of weakness and dependence to establish strength against his enemies. How is that possible? Well, in this metaphor, you and I, we are the infants. We're the weak ones. We're the ones who have nothing to offer God except for our dependence on him. And so we feel weak because we are weak. And God wants us to know that and accept that because that's one of the ways that he receives glory for himself. Because for even the weakest person, God can win the victory for them. 
And strength is found not in our own ability, but in praising God and turning to him as the one who is able. And so he says he's going to accomplish victory for those who are weak. In other words, God desperately wants to work through people who are desperate, who have no hope outside of him. God wins victory by his name being in the mouth of his people. God's enemies don't acknowledge him. They don't acknowledge his name, but the weak and the frail and the needy do. And so they have true strength against the wicked, against the enemies. In fact, as I was thinking about this, it reminded me of, you know, we're teaching right now through 1 Corinthians on Sunday mornings. And it reminded me of 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. Paul says this, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The the emphasis here is so clear, right? He's saying God intentionally chose people, right? He selected people like you and me, not because we were great and awesome and he wanted us on his team, but because we were weak, lowly, sinful, despised, even we were seen as nothing in the eyes of the world because that's how he shows the foolishness of human pride and human arrogance. So this is how God works a victory, not through the strong of this world, but through the weak. And what an encouragement that should be to us to remember that in our weakness, in our dependence on God, that's where God is going to show up in the biggest way. Now, who is this victory over? Well, it says it's to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, this is a singular, both these words are singular. So there's a reason to believe here. Maybe the psalmist David is referring to Satan himself. So previous psalms seem to be focused on Absalom's rebellion and God's victory. Now he's looking at the greatest battle and God's inevitable victory. That seems to be the focus here. So God's victory is won over his greatest enemy, not by the strength of his people, but by their weakness and dependence on him. What an amazing thing that is. So then we see Psalm 8, verses 3 through 4, we see the weakness of humans, the weakness of humans. So again, he focuses on how small and insignificant we are as people. Verse 3, he says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, We'll finish that thought in a second. But he's he's looking up at the moon and the stars. He's beholding the heavens. And he says that these are the work of God's fingers. That's the the term he uses. So the, the heavens are tiny compared to God. And you and I, we're tiny compared to the heavens. Right? God just uses his finger to construct the heavens. And yet to us, they're massive. They're beyond measure. And and I love this because you know, stars and the moon. The, the heavenly bodies, so to speak, are precise, they're massive, they're seemingly fixed and eternal. That's how they, they appear to us because we are so short, our lives are so short compared to them. They dwarf you and me. And, and here we see God deserves the praise for what he has done. Like an artist getting credit for what he's made, God deserves praise. And the, the natural we should, response we should have of being in awe of God is to declare how good he is. I just I love these verses here, how, how the awe of this person, as David's looking into the heavens, he's saying how great God is. John Piper uh, has, a, has a great 
quote. I, I always think of this, but he says this. He says, we are all starved for the glory of God, not self. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Why do we go? Because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than, it, than there is in beholding self. So I love that, right? <laughs> no one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. You don't, you don't sit in, beneath the stars and look up at them to feel better about yourself. In fact, it does the opposite. It makes us feel small. But by beholding God, by knowing him, by being in awe of him, we have our heart fixed in the right place. We have a healing and a wholeness that is given to us because of that. So he's looking at how small and insignificant man is. In verse 4, he says, in light of that, in light of this, the greatness of God, he says, or the greatest of the heavens, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So the word for man here is the word Enosh. It's the same word used in in Genesis 4, verse 26, when um, Seth has a son and he names him Enosh. And again, you could go back and you could listen to our teaching through the the book of Genesis because we talk about this. But after Adam has Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel. And then Cain is cursed. So both the first two sons of Adam are, are hopeless, right? One is dead and one is cursed by God. And so he has a third son named Seth, which means appointed. He says, because God has appointed for me another offspring. And then Seth names his son Enosh. And Enosh is a word that means, it means man in his frailty, in his weakness, in, in his sickness. In other words, he, Seth names his son weakness or frailty or incurable sickness because I believe he's seeing how helpless man's condition is. And it says in Genesis 4:26, after he names him Enosh, at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So, so man is weak, man is helpless, and so man has to call upon God, which reminds us of Psalm 8, right? That that's in our weakness uh, as babes and infants, we can call upon God. So we see the man, which is the word Enosh. Then we see the son of man, which is really son of Adam. And he's saying, why would you care for people like us? Yet God is still mindful of him in verse 4. That word mindful is the word for remembering. So God remembers us. He acts on our behalf. He still cares for us in verse 4. His heart goes out to us, and he also gives to us the things that we need. He tangibly provides for us in ways that help us to survive and to thrive. So this is a marvelous thing that God, in his exalted splendor, would care about weak and frail people, especially sinful people like us. God still cares about us. But then David goes on in the rest of the passage to talk about the important role that God gives to humans. So in verses 5 through 9, we see the role of humans. So yes, humans are weak. The heavens are so much greater but we have a certain role given to us by God. Verse five, he says, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So heavenly beings could refer to God himself or it could refer maybe to angels. I would take the the view probably, we're talking about angels here. So man is created a little bit lower than the angels. So man has a very significant status. In creation, man has a status above the animals and below the angels. But that means we're very, very important in God's plan. 
In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we see the image of God is given to man, that man's called to rule over the God's created order. And he's given the image of God, which refers to the special status and the, the role of representing God that humans have uniquely in the earth. So man is created in God's image for a special purpose, and with that, they're given a task, which we'll see in the following verses. Now, so we're above the animals because we have the image of God, but we're also below the angels, at least for now, right? In 1 Corinthians 6, 2 through 3, we see that we're going to one day judge or rule over the angels. So man, because of their place in Christ, because of the redemption that Christ gives to us, has such an exalted status beyond our wildest dreams. But there's a clear connection here in the, the following verses to Genesis 1.28, where God tells them to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of, of the heavens and, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so in the following verses, that's essentially what the psalmist is saying, right? We've been given dominion by God over the works of his hands. So we have dominion, but God's the one who owns, right? So we have a stewardship given to us by God, and this is part of what makes humans distinct from the animals, is that we have not only the image of God, that we represent God on the earth, but also that we've been given dominion or authority by God, that we're called to rule over God's good creation and to care for it. And then he says at the, at the end, um, or sorry, I should say, verse 6, he says, You've given him dominion over the work of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. So under his feet is a picture of a defeated enemy under the foot of a conqueror. So this this kind of leads us to think about the the kingship motif in Scripture, which was true of Adam, who was created as a king in that original creation paradise, and he rebelled against God. And then David, who's the king who's writing this, and ultimately Jesus, who's the one who God finally places all things under his feet, gives him all authority and all rule. And so the the psalm ends how it began, right? Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So it ends in the same way, but now we have a fuller sense, a fuller understanding of God's majesty and why we should be in awe of him, that he would care for people like us. So a few practical things. One is there's great power in the simplest praise of God. For the weakest person, the, the, the child or a person who's disabled or whoever it might be who doesn't have uh, power or doesn't have a high degree of intelligence, their praise to God is a powerful thing. <laughs> it's a powerful thing. So we shouldn't think our praise is less significant because we're less educated or less powerful. Not at all. God's clear that praise in the, in the, the mouths of the dependent is a powerful thing. And this means also we should, we should, with our kids, teach them to praise God at a young age. If, if their praise is powerful, it's going to not only shape their life, but it's also powerful in the here and now. God has a plan for it, so we should teach our children. We should foster that heart of praise early on. We also see that God loves to use weak instruments so that he can get all the glory. That maybe sometimes what's stopping God, in a sense, from working in your life is that you are too independent. You are too strong. You think that you have it all figured out. You won't get on your knees and pray in humble dependence on God. Uh, that, that arrogance is something that God doesn't like to work through. He likes to work through those who simply will obey him in simple trust in what he says. Um, another thing we could say from this is we should observe the world and be humbled. 
we should take time. Obviously, we, we talk a lot about scripture. This is where God speaks most clearly, but God also reveals himself in a, in a unique way through his creation. And so we should look and behold God's creation and be humbled that we are so small and insignificant, and yet God cares for us. That's an amazing thing. Um, and ultimately, I, what I'd say from this passage is all of this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's the perfect image of God, and he's the one who finally will receive full and perfect dominion over God's creation. In fact, we see this, this psalm mentioned a couple times in, in the New Testament. One is in Matthew 21, where God's Christ is healing people in this Passion Week narrative, and the children are coming to him, and the children are praising him, and the, the religious leaders get upset with this. Jesus, why are you letting them say this? Stop them from saying this. And Jesus responds with the words of Psalm 8, verse 2. He says, Have you never read, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? I love this, right? Because who is the praise directed to in this context in Matthew 21? It's directed at Jesus. Who is it directed at in Psalm 8? It's directed at God, right? So Jesus is here implicitly declaring that he is God, that he's the one who's going to receive this praise because he is the same God that was written about in Psalm 8. And so the small and weak in Jesus' day understood who he was, and the great and powerful did not. So let that be a reminder to us to not take pride in our own understanding, but to depend on God. We also see a mention of this in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 27. I won't read that now, but then also in Hebrews 2, 5, through nine, so the, the the writer of Hebrews uses Psalm eight and this subjection that's going to be given to humanity, and saying that this applies to Jesus. He says in verse nine, Hebrews two nine, he says, "But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone." So he he realizes that. The ultimate fulfillment of this passage is not in David, it's not in us, but it's in Jesus, who is placed below the angels for a time so that he can win the greatest victory and have everything, all the the powers of this world under his feet and, and bring to his people victory and life and forgiveness through his work on the cross.